Pitch Deck Asia. Your story, your words. Boom, we're live. Graham Brown, Pitch Deck Asia. Very happy to have in the studio a... Uh, for, we've met before, but mm. this is the first time we're going to go deep into the story. Mm. Greg Lipper. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here. Happy is the subject of the hour. We're going to talk about Happy, your startup, and also um, your backstory. Mm. I learned that you have a very interesting backstory. Um, obviously, you're American. Yes. Um, but the interesting part is you spent 30 years? Now? I'm 52, and I've spent all of my adult life in Asia. Wow. I moved to Literally. Japan. Yes, I, Literally. Moved, I moved to Japan when I was 21. Wow. Yeah. Mm. You did 12 years in Japan, 20-odd mm -hmm. years, more or less, mm. in Singapore. Mm. Do you consider yourself Asian? No, uh, I consider myself a New Yorker. Right. Okay. You can take the boy out of New York. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Still there. The accent's there, right? So you grew, I mean, I'm fascinated by the story because it sort of creates the whole backstory to Happy and what mm -hmm. you're doing now and how you got here. That sort of bigger why mm -hmm. as well. Um, let's unpack it a little bit and then we'll talk about Happy and we've got your pitch deck as well. So we'll sure. go and look at that. Talk about what you do, the problem that you're solving. How many languages do you speak? Currently, just Japanese and English. Just Japanese and English. Yes. I like how you put it in that order. Because you, you moved out into Japan in 1988, 89, mm -hmm. to Kansai, which is... Was it Osaka that you were in? Or? Well, um, I was living in Ashia, which is a town between Kobe and Osaka. Right, uh, wow. And it's usually where very wealthy people lived. Um, I was living... I, I rented a room from an old lady who was a widower. And rather than being alone, she rented out rooms to six, seven university students so it was perfect for me. I mean, I uh, the, I had six built-in friends, and uh, it was almost like living in a frat house. Right. Mm. Built-in Japanese friends. Were they yes, yes. I, it's funny. I was the first foreigner that she ever rented a room to. Yeah. And every year since I've left there, there was another foreigner. Yeah. And the old lady, Tsumura-san, called them all Greg because she couldn't be bothered <laughs> to learn another name. <laughs> It's easy, Greg. Yes. You left a good impression as well. So, I mean, that part of Japan as well. I mean, it's not like you've lived in Tokyo, the big metropolis, right? Oh, I did after I lived. But when you moved, yeah. I mean, when you moved out there in the eighties, which is pre, nobody really knew what Japan was about. No, at that stage, I mean, the only images we had of Japan in the eighties were a little bit of that through the music at the time. People were talking about Japan, referencing it through new romantics and stuff. That was about it. And then well, maybe but Samurai. But it was also, especially in America, there was all the hysteria of, you know, the Japanese are buying everything. They bought yeah. Rockefeller Center. They bought Pebble Beach. and Van Gogh. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I don't think they made any money on any of those right. purchases. But um, no, there was a lot of um, anxiety mm. um, and, of course, interest about Japan at the time. Where did you sit with all of that? Were you going there because you Oh, were... I was fascinated. Um, so I guess I'll... Tell the story. Good I, I, it's a good, in, really interesting um, story. I graduated about a year early from university. I, I took the entrepreneurial studies program at Babson College, and a little plug for Babson. It was a great uh, start. Um, my mother is Danish and can speak five languages. And before I graduated, she mentioned that it's wonderful that I'm graduating early, but she can't respect a man that can speak only one language. <sighs> And that if I wanted her respect, I should go to Japan, China, or Russia and learn the language. Wait, she said Japan, China, Russia, not 
like France. No, and I said Germany. I said, so uh, mom, why those three countries? She says, well, they'll always be important countries and they'll never speak English well. Well, well, that was very foresight there. From yes, the uh, but this was the late 80s, right? The yeah. wall hadn't come down yet. Um, yeah, exactly. China and Russia were just not ready for me. And Japan was on top of the world. So it was a pretty uh, easy decision to make then. In retrospect, I'm not sure it was the great long-term decision, but uh, it was a good decision. Um, you moved to Japan in the 80s. Yes. You've been in Asia for 30 odd years. Mm. And yet you haven't gone back. You are quite comfortable here. And that you have, you know, you're starting a business here. I think there's a lot of parallels between being an entrepreneur and living in different countries. I mean, in the sense that if you've gone to Japan, you didn't die. No. It, despite all your worst fears about whatever could happen in Japan and the food and all that, mm -hmm. you survived, thrived. And that, to me, there's parallels with that. I could stay in my own hometown and be like the corporate, or I could go and do something. There's people who have a low tolerance for uncertainty, shouldn't start businesses, and probably shouldn't live outside of the country of birth. If you can deal with uncertainty as kind of a, a, a source of fun and curiosity mm. and, and, and mystery, then you'll probably do well both starting businesses and living in other countries. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty. Yes. Exactly. I mean, no matter how glamorous startup life appears, mm. from the outside at least, on the inside, every day, the hustle, you get up, you hustle for your bread. That's mm. what it's like. Even when you're, you're making millions, you're still hustling. Yes. And there's, there, there's a lot of um, soul searching and introspection yeah. that goes on. While you're selling the external story, there's always an internal story that has to be managed uh, as well. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm going to ask you about that as well. Like mm. Why happy as well? Let's um, maybe kick off and talk about what happy is. I've sure. got your pitch. There. I'm just going to flash the pitch set it up. So, for those that are watching can see some visuals about what it's about. So, if we sure. can just... Open up the pitch deck. So this is your investor deck for happy. So um, at first inspection, it's very bright and colorful. So it looks one, happy. One would expect so, yes. Exactly, with a name like that. Mm. But now we're going into this interesting market. So it's something to do with emerging consumers, emerging markets. So take it away. What's sure. It um, the happy opportunity lives at the intersection of technological changes and demographic changes. Uh, and as the baby boomers taught marketers of previous generations, demographics is, is destiny. Um, and if you look at where the growth is coming uh, over the next several decades, it's not America, it's not Western Europe, it's not the UK. Um, 80%, as we say on the, on the next slide, 80% of the middle class. Yeah, here we go will live outside of North America and Western Europe uh, by 2030. Yep. Brands that survive the next 10, 15 years will see 50% of their consumption come from consumers they don't know today. And the wonderful thing is uh, that those consumers, and by the way, you know, they're, they're, they're not in Denmark, they're in Dhaka. Uh, they're, they're not in Manchester, they're in Mumbai. And it used to be really difficult to reach them uh, because the old survey methods, uh, which were largely broadband and, and personal computer based, just didn't work, right? Because in order to have um, 
a desktop computer, you have to have a desk, which means you have to have a house, which means you have to have a broadband connection. Mm. Um, and in many cases, the surveys were done in English. Well, being able to participate in that already defines you in these parts of the world as being a rich person, and rich people don't do surveys. Um, and so it was uh, up until very recently, these were very difficult people to reach. Um, in 2017, the world spent about $45 billion on market research, on formal market research. And about 85% of that money was spent in North America and Western Europe. Not necessarily because that's where the greatest growth opportunity was, but that's where it was easiest uh, mm. to do, where the infrastructure was there, the panels are there, the, the methodologies are accessible. So now the world has changed. It's changed in two ways. One, there's this whole new group of consumers that are critically important to the future of global brands and, and local brands, of course. But the technology has changed because now everybody has a mobile phone. Um, there are more people in India that have a smartphone than have access to a toilet. Mm. Um, and so it's no longer just rich people. Uh, and uh, mobile data, uh, or the, the, the data networks, uh, the coverage has improved to the point where this is now uh, a viable medium. And so I started Happy uh, in 2015. We launched in 2016. Because um, in the same week, three things happened. Um, I saw a presentation from the then CMO of Lazada, who was predicting that in a few years, the world would spend $100 billion on digital advertising. And he was right. And that struck me as, well, there's no connectivity with digital advertising. When was the last time you saw a banner ad and you picked up the phone to call a friend to tell mm -hmm. them how that banner made you feel? Right. There's no loyalty. There's no connectivity. There's no, it's just kind of a, a flickering annoyance. And then later in that week, uh, I was talking to a friend who was trying to raise money for a cause and having a terrible time of it. Um, even in rich Singapore, if the specific cause you're trying to raise money for is not uh, in vogue at the time, it's really very hard. And then later that week, um, somebody uh, actually from – well, somebody uh, asked me to uh, take a survey. And the survey was a 30-minute monstrosity. And, I mean, in this day and age, nobody has 30 minutes for anything, right? When was the last time you spent 30 minutes doing anything? And, you know, this survey just assumed that I was happy to sit down and devote 30 minutes of my life answering these mm. questions. And so it – kind of just synthesized and I said, well, wait a minute, what if people could support a cause by using their opinions as currency, but you made the interactions really, really quick in like a mobile-friendly uh, format? And so that's what Happy does. The The surveys in Happy are, are chunked down to five questions. You can answer with a thumb. It's, all, it's a mobile-only format, so it's nice, big um, letters and um, scrolling and we can show video and we can show images. Uh, we can even send somebody to a website and then bring them back and ask them questions about it. Um, but the idea is that for every brief interaction, you get these points and we call them smiles. 
And you can use the smiles to donate to one of the 300 charities uh, that we support across Asia. Or you can use them to get prizes for yourself or for someone else. Now, the prizes are key because it goes back to the demographics. The two most important prizes, one is mobile data. Um, if you Can so you br bring the deck yeah. up? Yeah. Go one further. I'm sorry, one further. Now, there. That, to me, is amazing. Can you tell us what the it is? Some people can't sure. see it. Some people are listening. The difference between the gray area and the blue area. So the gray area uh, is essentially the southern hemisphere. So um, in, in the Americas, from Mexico and below, um, and in uh, the Euro-Asian uh, continents, essentially from, oh, help me, Mongolia uh, and below. Hmm. The area that's in gray is almost 100% prepaid mobile usage. There's a few exceptions. Singapore is an exception. Australia is an exception. Um, but even there, they have uh, multiple SIM cards. So now go back one more. Uh, yeah. So one thing that they do do is they use a lot of prepaid mobile. Something that they don't do is use the traditional banking system. Mm. Look at those numbers, especially in Africa and India and South America. We're talking about 50, 60, 70 percent of adults being unbanked. This came from a really fascinating study from McKinsey called Half the World is Unbanked. Um, and as Bill Gates famously said not too long ago, the world needs banking. That doesn't mean that it needs banks. Mm. Um, and so the, the gifts that we give away on Happy, one of them is prepaid mobile. And the other is microfinance credits. But the thing about it is you don't have to take it yourself. So you can answer 50 survey questions. You get a microfinance, you, you select the microfinance credit, and then you type in the mobile number of who you want to give it to. So the people that are borrowing money um, from microfinance institutions, they're not the destitute, unemployed um, beggars on the street because those people really have no way to repay it. They're merchants mm. and shopkeepers and um, BPO uh, workers who you know need more money until their next paycheck. But they are the quintessential emerging consumer. And the idea is um, your auntie owns a uh, a sari sari shop, a roadside shop. She she borrowed money uh, to buy inventory. And now you and the rest of the family can help her pay off that loan simply by responding to surveys. Okay, so we've got the idea of Happy, which mm. is th there's this sort of perfect storm of middle-class consumption, middle-class consumers in Asia. Mm. Add to that the, the fact that traditional market research techniques are less effective, broken mm. even. And then also the need for these certain types of tokens or rewards, whether mm. it is with good causes, prepaid top-ups or banking, mm -hmm. microfinance and so on. Bring all this together. Now, who would be the customers, the clients of this? Is it the brands who are trying to reach these people? Why, why would they go through this than say, you know, like going through Ipsos or Mori or Gallup or all the established polling companies? Because they've got those relationships. Tell us a little bit about who the customers are here and also why they would choose to go with a service like this. Okay. Um, 
It's a complex answer um, because we offer different services. We offer services ranging from just um, flat surveys that will measure, for example, the recall, the attribution, and the impact of advertising, uh, all the way to uh, passive metering studies. Passive metering is the ability to aggregate information about what people are doing on their phone. And we can connect to the mic on the phone. So we can hear when somebody has been exposed to an advertising soundtrack. Mm. And we know exactly what they're doing on their phone before, during, and after the exposure. So, so rewind again. How does this work? So um, audio content recognition right. is the same technology that enables Shazam to tell you gotcha. All right. what the music on the radio is. Yeah, Shazam has a huge database. Mm. We upload to our platform just the soundtrack of ads that clients are interested in. So we can time and location stamp when and where uh, somebody hears an ad. And then we can correlate that with the information of what apps they use, what websites they visit, what terms they search, exactly what they're doing on their phone. You and have so, to be monitoring their phone to do this. Of course. Right. And they allow us to do okay, it. Gotcha. And, and we pay $20, $25 a month. Uh, to people to allow it, and in Vietnam, in Myanmar, in Bangladesh, it's a lot of money. Twenty-five dollars is impacting, you know, impactful money. Right. So you that you pay them to allow you to monitor their phone to understand the behavioral data of how they interact around ads, and that it could be around ads, right? Okay. So that's why I said the answer is complex. It depends on what it is the client wants. At the end of the day, the people that will make the best use of this data are the consumer brands, uh, possibly politicians. Um, but so ultimately, the consumer is a company like Procter & Gamble, like Unilever, like Colgate. But it's not just FMCG. It's, mm. it's restaurants, it's beverages, it's transportation. Now, whether they're the ones who purchase it or their agencies do, um, you know, there's multiple paths uh, to there. Uh, but what we're trying to do is give clients a faster, cheaper, easier, daily updated connection with these very specifically profiled consumers. Um, a, for insights, but it's not just insights. We can test promotions. Um, we can ask people, have you seen this ad? Are you likely to buy it in seven days? If they say yes, we can then send them a coupon. Hmm. And we can tell whether they've used the coupon or not. So we can then survey them about how they like the product or where they didn't use the coupon. Um, Is it only campaign-based or ad-based? Could you also validate products, for example, that way? Sure. Like a product idea? Yeah. Um, we can also invite people to sample products. Um, hmm. we're, uh, we can do crowdsourcing programs. So, hmm. for example, um, brands pay good money for retail shelf space all over the region. They need an effective way to audit that they're actually getting that shelf space. Well, mm. We have across the region now 180,000 uh, users uh, on the app, and that will grow significantly going forward. But we offer them money in the form of smiles, uh, and we give them an assignment. We say, okay, we need you to cover these five stores in this area. We need you to take these pictures and upload mm. them here. So there's all sorts of different ways that a client can make use of the platform. So let me understand how you couch that sort of concept when you talk to people about it, because it's kind of research, it's kind of um, 
almost like the the product development as well if you're, yeah. you're testing it so when when you talk to people what do you tell people it is i don't i ask them what they want to achieve right. um i try to figure out what problem they're solving and then i figure out how our platform can help them do that right so let me give you another example of that we have an offering called adpulse the business of tracking advertisements is as old as advertising is mm. But the traditional methods are very slow and very expensive. Advertisers are accustomed to getting a report 30, 45 days after a campaign ends about um, recall and attribution and impact. Well, we've turned that around. Um, we're tracking about 50 brands in the countries where we operate. And of course, there are the FMCGs and the quick serve restaurants and the beverages and all of essentially brands that sell products of $20 or less, daily consumption products. We'll show people a snippet of an ad. If it was an online ad or a TV ad, they see screenshots. If it was a radio ad, they can hear the snippet. If it was a newspaper ad, they see it. And we ask, but we remove all branding from it. And so we ask people, have you seen this ad? And they'll say yes or no. And then we say, "Can you? do you remember what brand or product it was for? And that's an open-ended question. They have to type in uh, the product or brand name. And we're checking these. We're not checking for spelling or spacing errors or all that, but we're just making sure that, okay, that person actually knew what brand that was. Uh, and then we ask uh, about purchase history and then purchase intent and then whether the ad made that person more or less likely to buy. We do this with 200 people in each city where we operate on day 7, day 14, and day 21 of a new ad release so that somebody can see the trend. And they're seeing this mid-campaign. But the really fun thing is we can benchmark because we're asking the exact same questions to people about different ads. So you can compare how the McDonald's ad uh, performed versus the Kentucky Fried Chicken ad. Or how ads from agency A mm. performed versus agency B. Or whether you really are getting better value with online ads versus TV ads. Because you're not, you know, we're measuring the same number of people, the same 200 people for recall, attribution, and, and impact. And we can do it for $200 a report. So that's a completely different paradigm than uh, a brand manager or a CMO that's accustomed to spending tens of thousands, possibly hundreds mm. of thousands for ad tracker campaigns that are delivering data 45 days late, we're taking a much smaller slice. We're only surveying 200 people uh, for each ad, but it is much faster, much quicker, easier, cheaper. How does that change anything in the sense that I'm always interested in how does this change behavior when I talk to people about their technology? Now that you have this solution and people use it, they're obviously using it to monitor what they're doing and getting feedback. Once they get that feedback, what does that do in terms of changing the way they do their behavior? What have you noticed, observed so from customers? There's two immediate uses. One is um, making changes to the allocation of funds from one media to another mid-campaign. Uh, but the other is finding interesting results and saying, ah, okay, so uh, in this market, um, young women uh, responded well uh, to this specific message or this specific offer. 
we can then create a lookalike audience. Uh, well, we can provide the mobile IDs and the Facebook IDs so that the client can create the lookalike audience and then test hmm. that promotion, that message, that whatever it is, the, that gem that they found very quickly and very inexpensively. But how does that, I get that bit, but how does it actually change behavior within it, the clients? What, what, it, what does it do in terms of their process? It reduces decision cycles. Right. It enables, uh, enables a, a client to make decisions faster, mm. uh, and it enables ideas to be tested with a much smaller budget. And what does that then lead to? Does that lead to then... Well, then... theoretically, it leads to better products and right. better that, advertising I decisions. I get that bit, but I'm trying to get to, like, do they change, for example, how they do their thing? Like, do they say, okay, look, now that we've realized we can do this so much faster and validate it faster, let's not do this anymore. Let's do it that way are you seeing that sort of it's a sort of a cultural shift within clients who are used to doing things for like 20 30 years the mm -hmm. same way with and generally with ad agencies who creative agencies who take the lead right yep now they're saying actually we can do it this way now because we don't need to go through that route it's the tail wagging the dog if you like so well that's clearly the vision that compels me and gets me out of bed in the morning um, I think that's the way it's going to go. Let me come back in a year, uh, and I'll tell you. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is relatively new. Yeah. Um, but clearly, what we're trying to do is enable clients to make better, faster decisions with less money. But also, uh, in this age of huge media expansion and and hyper segmentation, it's now easy to tailor messages to specific markets. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to see what kind of insights you get from that and you see how that sort of feeds back into the cultural change within clients mm. as well, especially when you're talking about people like, you know, the, the, the large MNCs, the, the Unilevers, the, the Procter and Gambles, all these guys who have done things for generations the same way. And I was reading, I don't know if this is sort of falls into your area, like Alibaba, what they're doing now is what they call new manufacturing. Yes. Which is basically where they'll, Instead of Unilever and their agency going to them, like WPP will say to them, like, okay, look, we we have this idea and this mm. is the big idea, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, this is what we think. What they're doing now is Alibaba are taking the lead and say, we've noticed this trend. Young women are searching for um, solutions to pollution in China, like healthcare, like skincare. Yep. We've noticed this pattern emerging. Um, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, take all that data, we're going to create this mock-up product, like some pollution skincare product. We're going to rapidly validate it. And then what we're going to do is as they go to check out, they realize this is not real product, but thank you very much. Here's a coupon and come back when we actually do this. So they can validate it. They can basically validate an idea without creating a product. And they can also build a group of fans who are ready to buy that product when it launches. So it, I think what's interesting yes. about the whole cultural shift is now the guys with the data are driving all the product development and you're not waiting for these sort of clever madmen to come in and say, hey, this is what your business should be. So is that sort of what we're talking about yeah. here? Because that sounds like well, the future. What you just described is a new product development um, scenario and that's perfectly valid, but we could also do it for market entry. So let's say there's this great new product from France or Spain, and before they go through the effort of actually bringing it over and doing a campaign, they want to test it. 
Well, we can either show actual video or we can do these really cool 3D renderings of any product. So you can see it from 360 degrees and you can look mm. inside of it. You can walk into the house. Um, and then we can ask people questions about, you know, do you want it? Uh, what would be your concerns? Uh, how much money would you spend? And then when we p find people that uh, give the right answers that are that qualify themselves for being in the sweet spot, we can then send them promotions, coupons, mm. invite them to the launch event, as opposed to a drive-by survey where you never get that person back. This is a long-term relationship that we have with our users. Our users use the app every day because they want more smiles to get whatever it is that they want to get. But because we know how they responded to a question three weeks ago, we can then direct a mm. new campaign or a new question to them. What is all of that? How do you describe it? You talked about product development. Is it new product development? It's a bit marketing. It's all of the above, isn't it? Is, it is, has anybody come up with a clever word for all of that yet? Because so, once you kind well, of name it, people can understand what it is. Well, um, our, the, the tagline that I come up with is that we help brands understand, engage, and converse with emerging consumers. Mm. Um, better, faster, cheaper than they were ever able to before. Right. And that is not just marketing, is it? No, it's not. It's the whole cycle that you're talking about. Because in the old world, it's all pipeline, isn't it? And, it's like, and by I'm the, the way, marketing it's, guy, I'm the it's not just product. Um, a, a few years, uh, last year in the Philippines, uh, the government introduced a sugar tax. Mm. And before that tax went out, there, we did a lot of surveying around how people felt about it. And actually, there was a lot of the brands didn't like it. The people liked it. Right. Um, Funny that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can use this for political surveying, for opinion surveying. Um, um, well, actually, we've done a case study on this, so I guess it's okay. Uh, to, so far, I think one of the most interesting studies we've done was for Google. Um, and it was for the HR side of Google. Um, and Google's fe feeling at the time, and I'm sure it still is, is that they want to hire mindsets. They don't necessarily care what you're studying mm. or where you're studying yeah. or even what your grades are. They want to hire people that want to do cool things that matter, that want to work on teams where diversity is the default, um, with, that are comfortable working in an environment where every idea is meant to be challenged. And if somebody challenges your idea, they're not challenging you. They're challenging the idea because they see merit in the idea. Mm. And that last one is really uh, difficult in Asia. And so they came up with about 235 questions uh, in an attempt to define the purple unicorn, which is the term that they use to describe these people. And we uh, surveyed 1,500 people on 20 university campuses in two countries in four days and found 27 purple unicorns. And the thing about it is that the people answering the questions didn't know that it was Google right, yeah. asking. Um, and there was no interviewer to impress. There was n all of the human reasons for giving a false answer are gone. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so. So what is a purple unicorn? I just described it, per a person with those three things. Right. But what would that, so they, in the sense that that is what Google wants, that's the sort of key to their hiring, would they? Listen, um, I'm not going to claim that I understand right. the, the whole program, 
they gave us one sliver of one assignment, gotcha. and that how, how that fits into the broader piece is is beyond me. Very interesting. Mm. Okay, I mean it's, it's fascinating what you you can do with this and the different kind of applications you talked about brands, politics as well. And obviously the huge investment in market research. Employer branding, recruitment. um, This this is an interesting area, employer branding and recruitment, mm. because if you're talking about, I mean, if if you apply the same kind of mindset to market research or to marketing and product development, Mm. there are existing tools which are effectively broken, not well adapted to digital and to emerging consumers. And yet employer branding as well, everybody talks now about all these soft skills that they want, mm-hmm. but we're still using these CVs to recruit people. And we still have a process which effectively, if you think about it, is trying to identify the people who can follow rules. Sure. Right? Did you follow the rules enough that you, your parents sent you to this school mm-hmm. and like sacrificed everything? So it's that sort of whole filtering factory process, isn't it? How do you apply that in employer branding? What do you feel, because I think employer branding is the next big growth area. It's my personal hypothesis because I see brands like Grab here when they're recruiting thousand data scientists or whatever it is, mm-hmm. same as Stripe. It's all about our culture. It's all about these soft HR issues, which they don't kind of fit into the recruitment process. But how do you capture all of that? And where do you think this is going with what the kind of tools that you're building? So the immediate benefits that we offer in that regard is speed and timeliness, right? So if something comes up in the news, if there was a, an article uh, about a specific company or about a specific issue, we can ask people right away um, how they feel about it. We can also enable people to give not just text responses, but audio responses, video responses, um, which can really give an employer um, much richer um, information. Uh, but we can also uh, do it over a longer period of time. We mm-hmm. have another client that wants to have two or three years of surveying somebody uh, and having all of that uh, data and then make the decision as to who they're going to uh, invite into an interview. But we could also turn it around where it's not the company selecting the employee it's the people selecting mm. the company and, and and saying, well, you know, how would you like to know how people feel about your brand versus the other bank or versus the other phone company or whoever your competitor is? Um, and it's not just a general thing, right? It could be on how do you feel about this company in terms of environmental citizenship, uh, in terms of diversity, in mm. terms of career opportunities. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's no longer a biannual survey that, you know, uh, it's a it's a daily conversation. Do you think in the future, HR recruitment, the process will become longitudinal like this in the sense now it's all inside the four walls of the organization and any kind of, they do all the psychometric, psychometric testing and all that stuff. Yet maybe in the future, it's, we'll just monitor you for two years and then we'll pull the trigger when we're ready to talk to you because you've kind of checked all these boxes. I don't think there'll be one answer. It depends on the culture of the company. Uh, I mean, advertising agencies are going to have a different approach than Mm. IBM will, which will have a different approach than Goldman Sachs. And especially depending on the domain, certifications and domain knowledge and all of that is going to be much more important than in other fields where it's really about attitude and, and, you know, 
the things that somebody wants from life. Mm. So I don't think that there'll be one answer, but I think the days of it being a monolithic process are are over. Yeah, let's hope so. Yes. Because there's a lot of people who fall through the cracks, especially today, in the kind of skills and jobs that people are asking for. Um, so talk a little bit about the journey itself. So mm-hmm. you're, I know you, you said you launched in 2016, so you're, you're three years mm-hmm. now live. Um, I want to talk about where you go next, your fundraising as well. But before we do that, what have you learned in the process? So happy version 0.1 and where you are now, in your mind, what have you learned about what you're trying to do, your customers? What do you know differently? You know, when I started this business, um, one of our early investors um, said to me, I don't want you to raise a lot of money until you know exactly what business you're in. Mm. And Greg, I promise you, right now, you don't know exactly what business you're in. Um, And the way that he defined that is when you can write down on one piece of paper the title holder at the organizations and the industries you're going to sell to and why they're going to buy your offering versus what they're already doing, then you know what business you're in. Right. Um, And he was absolutely right. And it took us – because this is such a broad field, right, and there are so many different avenues that you can go down um, and – they're all valid avenues. I mean, if we wanted to focus the company on just being an employer branding company, mm. there, there's a valid business there. If we wanted to focus on just recruitment or just couponing, mm. um, I mean, all of those are, are valid businesses. Um, and so where I decided that I really want to focus is on the emerging consumer, is on the intersection point between – Global brands needing to understand this rapidly changing group because another thing about the emerging consumer is their needs, their opinions, uh, their expectations are changing faster than at any time in history. Um, And the local brands really have an advantage over the global ones and this also is possibly for the first time in history. Mm. Um, And so, uh, yeah, the the decision that – we came to as a company is that that's the problem we want to solve is we want to help clients, usually brands, understand this emerging consumer class uh, better, faster, and less expensively than they were able to do before. Um, how long did it take you to get there? Did you start with that hypothesis? No. Was it something that you discovered along the way? When we started, we only recruited university students. Right. Um, there's two reasons for that. First of all, university students are easy, right? You know where to find them. They're at universities. They all have smartphones Mm. and they all need money. Uh, And they are belonging to teams and clubs and groups that are constantly trying to raise money. And so it was very easy to identify them and recruit them. And at the time, I thought, well, everybody in the world is going to be interested in university students because they're your future consumers and your future employees and your mm. future voters. And I was wrong about that. Um, we were able to recruit university students in every country we went to uh, pretty easily. We had a hard time uh, consistently connecting with revenue of clients that really wanted to do something with that mm. group. Um, what we learned as we went is that, well, the people that are spending money on research today are interested on consumers today, and those are primarily young families. Mm. Um, so, you know, the sweet spot 
all of a sudden went from university students to mothers of children zero to 12 years old. Um, and then as we went on in the business, we realized that, well, actually, no, there's many different segments, right? So there's other clients that are very interested in people that stream video. They don't really care how old the people is. It's just mm. this new phenomenon of of consuming video over the top as opposed to traditional broadcast. Um, we are a platform. And like any platform, we have to balance supply and demand. And it's not about the technology. It's about finding a niches that enough clients are going to want to tap into that we can recruit and retain time and cost mm. effectively. Exactly. And building a platform, like you say, has its own challenges. It's not easy. Yes. And you 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 have two-sided markets, you know, you, in some cases you educate a market as well, which is tough. Mm. Um but 3 years in, you've learned a lot in the process. Are you are you now fundraising? What's the situation? Yes. Um so we've uh this is not our first round. We've mm. we've we've raised capital. Um but we're preparing for a series a what we're, we're we're raising for now i wouldn't call a series a it's kind of it's a pre-series a um we're raising between one and two million dollars uh, u.s u.s um which according to our projections will take us to profitability uh and take us to the point where we can decide okay do we go out and raise a lot more money and accelerate growth across all of South Asia, Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, uh, and get the entire emerging market uh, world quickly? Or do we conserve equity, um, go through internally financed growth uh, where, you know, it might be slower, but we mm -hmm. end up with a larger piece of the pie? And that's a decision that we'll make uh, when we get there. Uh, personally, I believe in speed. Um, so I think that we would... Uh, raise a, a, a large uh, round in a, in a Series A and then go after accelerated growth. Okay, so you're doing a pre-Series A now. Yeah. Who are you looking to talk to? What kind of investors would be best suited for your type of business? Are they come from the world of research? Are they... They wouldn't necessarily come from the world of research, but they would certainly come from the world of marketing and branding. Um let me give you an example. Um, we have an evolving relationship with the largest tea brand in uh, Bangladesh called Ispahani. Ispahani has a direct channel of 400,000 merchants. And they look at us and they say, wow, this would be a great way that, you know, we can accelerate the pace of information that we get back from our merchants. And as we were talking, I said, yeah, and you know what? As long as it's not a tea brand, um, there's no reason we shouldn't let other brands use that same panel uh, and that you shouldn't get revenue share on that. Um, and that, of course, their eyes lit up and now we're moving together very, very quickly. And we'll end up soon in Bangladesh with a channel of several hundred thousand merchants uh, that are also consumers. But who would want to invest in that? Um, maybe the ventures division of a consumer brand. Mm. Um, another thing is that, I mean, eventually we'll end up with the world's largest uh, mobile panel of micro borrowers. Well, in the unbanked world, banks, insurance companies, credit cards, 
they're all going to have to understand these people. Uh, I mean, one of the the visions that I have is I think it would be great if we could work with an insurance company that would come up with a product uh, that you can pay for by taking surveys every day. Um, now, all of these insurance companies have venture arms as well. Um, management consulting firms from McKinsey to Bain to Accenture, they all need to bring their clients fresh sources of uh, insights. That's another potential investor class. That's really where the Series A will focus. What we're looking for now uh, are more uh, individuals, uh, angels, people that uh, buy into the idea and want to put in uh, the money necessary to get us to the next step. Uh, but that might not necessarily be an institution. Got it. And the best way to reach out to you, are you active on LinkedIn? Is that a great way to... I'm active on LinkedIn. Our website is happyglobal.com. My email address is greg at happy.sg. With an I. Happy. Yes, happy with an I. Excellent. Greg Lipper, everybody, from Happy. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today and sharing a bit of your journey as well. Wishing you all the best for the next chapter with that growth scale. Let's see how it goes and bring your insights next time as well, like in terms of what you've learned from all those surveys that you're running and it'd be great to see that sort of go full circle and see that change as well, because then, you know, that would be fascinating. We're actually creating change within these organizations as well. So looking forward to that. I'd great be happy to. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Bye. Greg. That was Pitch Deck Asia, powered by Pitch Media Asia. My name's Graham Brown. Pitch Deck Asia is a platform to give startups in Asia a voice. We give them a show to help them tell their story. And if you love these startup stories and like hearing more about the journeys of the founders, go and check out our SoundCloud channel, which is available at pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. That's pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. Head along to the channel, subscribe, follow us, and feel free to leave a comment or a rating on our channel as well. We'd love to hear your feedback.